is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Sarah Isger, and we have a full crew here. Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes, David Drucker, and John McCormick to, I don't know, recap the primary for the Republican Party? On the one hand, uh, it feels like the Republican primary might be over. You had some reporting this week that we'll talk about as well. On the other hand, you talked to the Haley team and they're very clear that they saw New Hampshire as day one of their campaign in a lot of ways. And they really do seem to believe that they're continuing on well past South Carolina and Super Tuesday potentially. So why don't you tell us where you think the race is? Well, look, I, I don't think we can say that this is a competitive race for the nomination uh, with a straight face because th- there's been no Republican nominee in the modern era that hasn't won in either Iowa in the caucuses or New Hampshire in that first primary, right? It hasn't happened. And when you look at the establishment support that Trump has, the grassroots support that Trump has, the polling support for Trump, uh, you just have to say that he's an overwhelming front runner. However, it it's interesting to watch because Nikki Haley is basically saying, I don't care what the rules are and I don't I don't care what history tells us and I don't care how bleak it looks for my campaign. I feel like I'm finally peaking. Money's rushing in. My my support among voters is going up, maybe because everybody else is, has dropped out and I've outlasted them, but whatever. And I'm going to go to South Carolina and compete. And I do think that she has enough money, particularly the way she is very careful with how she spends her money. And her super PAC, SFA Inc., is also this way, that she can get at least through Super Tuesday. And I think that what people should do is you know, stop focusing on what she can't accomplish and try and figure out what she's trying to accomplish, which may not necessarily be this wild belief that I'm going to come back from the dead and surprise everybody, but I'm going to accumulate a lot of delegates. And there may be reasons why she wants to do that. And there may be reasons why she's not interested in positioning for 2028. And mention briefly that story that you had earlier this week about where the RNC is on all of this. Right. So um, the Republican National Committee uh, was circulating a draft uh, resolution that would have declared Donald Trump, the presumptive nominee. And it's permissible under the rules to do this, even though he would still not be the presumptive nominee, in fact, until he uh, wins enough delegates and you need enough primaries and caucuses to be held to win enough delegates. He's clearly on path to do that. South Carolina is a winner-take-all state, for instance. He's likely to win it, even if Haley uh, shortens the margin and, and only loses close. So David Bossie, um, who was a co or, or a deputy campaign manager for him in 2016, is a longtime ally of his. He happens to be a, a Re- Republican National Committee man, an RNC committee man from Maryland. Uh, he's been on the committee uh, for quite some time now, and he was circulating this 
uh, proposal, which we were able to report on, on Thursday afternoon. And it, the, the plan theoretically was for the committee to vote on it at next week's winter business meeting in Las Vegas. My sources this morning were telling me that that thing is now dead. We saw Trump pull his support for it uh, yesterday, um, some hours after our story broke. And the, the important part about this is really not so much the proposal or the fact that it's now dead, and again, what my sources are telling me, but that uh, Trump really wants to just be the nominee already so he can focus on Biden, even though he's so far ahead of Haley in all of the important metrics, it bothers him. It's sort of infuriating him that she won't go away. And we see that the RNC is prepared to get behind him. And look, he's a former president. Most of the voting 168 members of the Republican National Committee are now uh, versus where they were eight years ago. These are now new, newer people and Trump people. And said so that they, I think they were more than happy to do this, except for some holdouts, uh, particularly in states where there are pri primaries and caucuses to come, and they want their you know moment of glory in the sun. But this likely would have passed. This is where I think I was confused, is because it's pretty clear to me just doing a you know informal Sarah whip count, uh, there were enough votes for this to pass at the RNC winter meeting because there's only these 168 voting members of the RNC. So Trump would have gotten what he wanted, this resolution. And yet the resolution has been withdrawn because Trump said he didn't want the resolution. So if he could have gotten the resolution and now he won't get the resolution, why would Trump say, let's not have the resolution? I think because it made him look weak and scared and there was so much blowback. And listen, Trump's the guy that's always screaming about rigged elections and fixed elections. And what he was trying to do was bypass the normal process. And so if you're really on track to have this big victory, which, by the way, I think he is, I mean, it's just the, the objective reporting of where things stand today is that that's the case one way or the other. Uh, what are you so afraid of? And it just was a bad look. And Trump does not like to look weak. He doesn't like things that don't look good. And, uh, you know, Haley was actually raising and is raising a lot of money off of his threats to blackball her donors his threats to sort of excommunicate this wing of the party from the party uh, if they stick with her. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Susie Wiles and Chris Lasavita, his two top advisors, said, hey, listen, we're going to pound her into the, you know, into the dirt anyway. Let's look magnanimous. You'll look like, you know, you're you'll look like you're not who you are, basically. Um, and so that's why I think Trump reversed course. I also think there was some pushback within the RNC, not a lot, but enough that it just became a problem. And I don't think they wanted to see a vigorous debate at the at the RNC winter meeting where some people were getting up opposing the resolution and, and others uh, were for it. John, I want to bring you in here. You've also been on the ground in some of these early states. Uh, you know, fight with David. Where is David wrong? Uh, that, uh, David is perfectly right. Uh, he, is, he, he is totally right. Um, no, I don't know. Uh, where, where can I get some disagreement here? So, no, I think David and Mike were totally right that, you know, Nikki Haley's team, they say, hey, we've got a chance. We're going to stick it out. I mean, if Ron DeSantis had finished at 44 percent in New Hampshire, you better believe he would fight on even if the odds were long and stacked against him. So I think that totally makes sense. I mean, I think that their their team is totally realistic. I don't think that they have some fantasy that, you know, there's just going to be some huge change. I think they they're going to keep fighting as long as they think that there's a chance. Um, you know, one question I was interested in is something that they have, uh, you know, they've dismissed routinely. They say, no, we have no interest in the vice presidential nomination. Nikki Haley herself has said that's, quote, off the table. 
Um, but, you know, if you listen to her closely, she's not ruling. She has not been Sherman-esque. You know, things that are taken off the table can easily be put back on a table. Um, and listening to her on, on the stump, you know, she's she, on the Internet, she's sort of becoming this never Trump heroine um, that she's going to become Chris Christie or Liz Cheney maybe in a couple of days. And who knows? Honestly, in the next few weeks, uh, this thing could get so nasty. Maybe she will surprise us in that direction. But listening to her on the stump, I mean, she says things like Biden is dangerous. He's taking us on a dangerous road to socialism. Um, even when she challenges Trump's, uh, you know, his mental decline, she says that he is, quote, mentally fit. Uh, so I don't think that she's really crossed any lines so far where this is totally insane. And I think the logic from Trump's perspective would be that Nikki Haley has something to give him that, you know, Annalise Stefanik cannot, which is votes, that Nikki Haley is obviously appealing to independents and moderates. And, um, you know, this election could end up being very close at the end and that she would uh, she, she would be a benefit to him in a way that the others wouldn't. He wanted John Kasich. Uh, back in 2016 and was rebuffed. Uh, he ended up settling on on Mike Pence, who had endorsed Ted Cruz and helped shore him up with church-going evangelicals. That was a real liability for Trump back in 2016. So um, again, some some speculation, but I would say uh, informed speculation uh, and an analysis of what she is saying and has not said so far. Um, so I think that's that's kind of an interesting angle. I think David is right that they're more what what they what their what their team is saying. Yeah, we're going to say in this. We got a chance. We're going to rack up delegates. Who knows what'll happen uh, with you know the legal stuff? And this guy is almost eighty years old. But I, I think that still really is a live possibility, and that um, it's it's interesting, worth examining that possibility. Steve, something I've always found interesting is the asymmetry that Trump brings to any election cycle because. For our whole lifetime and well before that, the point of a presidential campaign was to put together a coalition that could get you to 51 percent. And there were different ways to do that. Right. There were policy arguments to make um, retail politics stuff to do a vice president to pick who would maybe bring a coalition in as well. And Trump, to some extent, threw that playbook out the window. And instead of trying to build a coalition and meet those people where they are, he was over here saying, nope, this is where I am. Who wants to come with me? And it was a very different way. And, you know, both successful and not successful, right? He didn't win the popular vote in 2016, but he won the Electoral College. Uh, 2020, he obviously lost. But man, for someone who's not sitting there piecing together a 51% coalition, the Come follow me has worked pretty well for him. So I'm curious what you think about John's point on now will he think about his vice presidential pick as a coalition building exercise? I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily be characteristic of Donald Trump. It wouldn't be the way that he's done things. Um, I do think he picked Mike Pence in part to shore up his his evangelical base at a time when, you know, it it felt like maybe evangelicals wouldn't support him to the extent that they do now. But I, I would say one of the defining characteristics of the, the MAGA movement is is the willingness of its leader and many of its, its top spokesmen, whether real or de facto, to not care about coalitions and in fact say out loud that they don't care about coalitions. And we have the, the, the Kari Lake comment that Jonah has mentioned here before where she basically says to McCain, Arizona Republicans, we don't want you. Don't vote for me. You have similar comments. Marjorie Taylor Greene made a comment this week um, saying, in effect, if you're not super mega, you're not in our movement. We don't want your support. Donald Trump um, put out this this um, 
Truth Social post this week in which he said, anyone who gives to Nikki Haley is now out of the MAGA movement. We won't accept your support. Don't come crawling back to us. So you hear these, I mean, it is sort of anti-politics, right? I mean, this is the opposite of what most people do. I wouldn't say that he's been successful in, in doing that. On the one hand, Trump has had the effect of um, reshaping demographically what the various electorates look like, right? Republicans are now more um, non-college educated whites than they were before. He has expanded the the number of Hispanics broadly in the Republican coalition. Um, he's done well with, with black men. Uh, but in terms of building a, a longer, more sustainable coalition, of the kind you that you hear his hype men describe, like J.D. Vance and others, which doesn't exist. And when you look at actual elections, 2018, he lost exactly the kind of people that we're talking about with respect to, to, to Nikki Haley, suburban voters, traditional um, Republican voters, the soccer mom vote has, has sort of fled. 2018, 2020, 2021, and 2022, this has not proved successful for Donald Trump. The question is whether he can do it in 2024. I, I'm, I guess I'm skeptical. I think John's right to say, hey, we should hit pause on this fat, on, on this, this sort of growing narrative that Nikki Haley is going to embody sort of the spirit of, of never Trump because she's been here before, right? I mean, we've had Nikki Haley on all sides of this. She's been, she's worked for the man. She's condemned him in the harshest terms. She came back to him. She's condemned him again. She came back to him again. She distanced herself from him. So I'm open to her ending up sort of anywhere in that in that uh, spectrum. But I don't know that that that'd be enough. I mean, if you are a, a, a somebody who's disgusted by this choice, this Biden Trump choice, and as we've said, that's a majority of the country does not like this choice and you have concerns about Donald Trump either because of what you saw in the post-election period where he lied about winning in the January 6th moment where he incited violence after that where he's essentially campaigned openly as an authoritarian are you going to to say even if you're incredibly frustrated with Joe Biden or concerned about his age or all of these things are you going to wake up on election day and say Boy, I think Donald Trump is a, is a risk to the continuation of the republic. But if he's got Nikki Haley, I'm in. I just don't see that there are that many voters that way. All right, Jonah. So um, I have a slightly different take on all of this. I mean, look, I, I, I um, agree with pretty much everything that I've heard. But I think that the let's put it this way. I think psychological explanations of Donald Trump have more value than political explanations. And um, one of the things that we know about Donald Trump is he craves the ability to pick your adjective, uh, win over, humiliate, you know, somewhere on that spectrum. People who... Those are verbs, dude. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's probably the best rebuttal you've ever had to me. And, um, um, and so, uh, you know, you see what he did to Tim Scott, on, you know, election night in New Hampshire. Just explain what he did. Oh, yeah. So like, you know, uh, at his quote unquote victory speech where he comes up and vows revenge against Nikki Haley and um, and goes full festivus on everything. Um, he has 
Tim Scott go up and sing his praises after he first asked Vivek Ramaswamy to do it. And then um, basically, you know, humiliates him by with just first of all, by having him there like Kilroy over his shoulder for the shot the entire time was pretty terrible. But then he's like, um, you know, Nikki Haley appointed you and you're endorsing me. You must really hate her. And you could see the hamster wheels in Tim Scott's head going. This is like so contrary to everything I stand for. And it makes me seem like such a jerk that he finally has to say he interrupts Trump and says, it's just that I love you. And, um, you know, you couldn't hear it on the mic, but it implied was, and I love your musk. And it was just this utterly humiliating way to treat Tim Scott. Um, and, and, but he does this with everybody. He loves the idea of forcing people, you know, he's had episodes with Romney in the past of proving that he alpha dogged people. And I remember his first joint interview with Mike Pence, where he gave Mike Pence permission to answer a question and permission to take a drink of water, right? I mean, like he loves doing that dominant thing. And so it would break my heart if Nikki Haley is doing all of this to be the running Trump running mate. But this is the best strategy to become Trump's running mate is to convince Trump that she is a credible critic who he can bend to her will and humiliate in the process and prove to everybody that he is the leader of the pack. Now, as a political strategy, I'm with Steve. I don't think it's particularly smart for uh, Trump to pick Nikki Haley um, because I think there are very few votes that he needs that Nikki Haley can deliver for him. She will completely sell out her credibility if she does this. And the only way it makes sense for Nikki Haley to be his running mate is if you think he's not going to win or if you think he is going to be removed from the ticket or removed from office in, either by an act of God or an act of Congress. Um, but to be, to go four years as Donald Trump's running mate, she'll never be liked by the MAGA crowd. She'll always be vilified by them. Steve Bannon will always say she's a fifth column in the White House. And um, at some point, Donald Trump will expect Nikki Haley to do the kinds of things he expected Mike Pence to do. And if she does them, she will be a villain in, human, in American history for all time. And if she doesn't do them, she will be humiliated and, um, um, and completely uh, anathematized by this crowd. So I, I just personally don't think it's smart for her to do it. I think it would be smart for him to do it because it sends the signal and all these kinds of things. But it's, I think the reasons for it would be psychological more than they would be political. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10000 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so let's do then just a quick round the horn on whether. <laughs> How do I phrase this? Like the Republican primary may be over in terms of who the nominee is going to be, but maybe the Republican primary isn't over in terms of what Nikki Haley has to say, if I can summarize Drucker's point. From here, we have Nevada, which isn't really doing a thing, but that'll exist, I guess. South Carolina, Super Tuesday. Are we still going to be talking about the Republican primary or is everyone basically going to shift to the general um, and you can separate us from everyone else if you'd like. Steve, I'll start with you on this. Yeah, I mean, I think people are likely to to shift pretty quickly to the general um, pending the outcome in South Carolina, right? I mean, I think there's there's not been a ton of polling in South Carolina. The polling that there has been shows Donald Trump in an utterly dominant position. Um, the latest poll, I think, was an Emerson poll that has him up almost 30. Um, there was polling far back as October from CNN that had him up 31. So, you know. Could could that somehow flip for Nikki Haley because it's her home state? It's just hard to see how that happens. Um, and if she's running a distant second, at a certain point, I think you know even her donors and her diehard supporters are going to say, sort of, what's what's the point? I think it's fun. I, you know, I, I'm enjoying this, right? And by all accounts, she's enjoying this. She's she's decided that she's going to really take it to him. Um, you know, I know we've had some folks talk to to people in in her world who say, you know, this has become a little bit personal. She's pretty frustrated at Donald Trump uh, and his team having resurfaced these allegations that she had an extramarital affair. Uh, he's taking these shots at her. She's capitalizing on it, literally, uh, well, not literally, but uh, figuratively turning those shots into dollars, um, really having fun fundraising. So, I think it's enjoyable if if you are somebody who doesn't think that Donald Trump is, you know, good for American politics, should be the next president. This is fun, but it is hard to see how it ends in anything other than Donald Trump uh, winning the nomination at this point, unless, you know, outside events intervene. And John, there's look, there's some argument that Donald Trump benefits from this as well. He wants to continue to be the center of attention. He doesn't want Biden in the limelight. So yeah, you have these criminal cases. You're gonna have the Supreme Court stuff coming up. You've got the Eugene Carroll case where he testified this week, albeit briefly. Um, and to some extent, then Nikki Haley sort of is another way to keep that keepy-uppy ball in the air without giving Biden any oxygen. And by the way, point of personal privilege, but doesn't it seem strange that Donald Trump keeps orchestrating these um, hits on rivals that have to do with them having affairs? Like, huh? It's it's a, it's a real crazy pills moment, right? You know, it's just. <laughs> I mean, again, and for those who are not familiar, in 2016, there was a National Enquirer story that uh, Ted Cruz had five mistresses. My picture was one of them. Uh, my name wasn't in it, but I. <laughs> This is a this is a real sticking point for me. But when it talked about the other women um, 
it, you know, was like sultry, sexy, blah, blah, blah. And then it like got to describing me and it was like school marmish, bookish. And I was like, wait a second. <laughs> this is deeply insulting. <laughs> if you're going to include me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you never can trust the, the, right? the National Enquirer, can you, Sarah? Fake Some of us like media. the sexy librarian thing, Sarah. So don't dismiss it completely out of hand. All right. Call in HR. Well, one of the other women, I won't, I won't say who it is. She was she was a speechwriter, um, and it was a job that I had actually been approached about uh, for a different senator. And I thought, man, if I would taken that job for a speechwriter, I could have been in this National Enquirer story. Like I missed my shot. <laughs> but you know where where Donald Trump made a huge mistake on that one, of course, is that uh, pretty much every reporter in town dismissed the notion that Ted Cruz could have five mistresses. Honestly, I think if he had just gone with one, it would have been more plausible potentially. Like I don't you know, know the sort Sarah. of even a blind squirrel, yada, yada. Um, but I, it's again, it's sort of almost Trump projecting. Anyway, John, back to the point, which is what about this keepy uppy idea that Donald Trump actually may want and benefit from a continued Nikki Haley um, not, you know, not going to actually uh, challenge his nomination, but nevertheless staying in the news? Well, you know, David probably has numbers better than I do, but there is a history of high turnout in uh, one party's primaries being good for it in the end that people do show up. Now, does it become so acrimonious? that Again, these are all independents who hate Trump that it doesn't really tell us much in the way that previous contested primaries. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, he loves getting up there and ranting and I'm the winner and he's on TV. Um, I mean, I do. So yeah, you asked earlier whether we'll sleep, still be talking about this come Super Tuesday. I do think that if Nikki Haley even puts puts up decent ish numbers in South Carolina, she's going to stick it out another 10 days through Super Tuesday. Uh, I haven't done a close examination of everything, but there actually are some states that are better demographically for her. For example, in Virginia, um, the the demographics that turned out in 2016 were 60 percent college educated, 40 percent non-college. Now, you rerun those numbers based on the, the turnout in New Hampshire with Nikki Haley winning college educated 56-41, losing non-college uh, 33% to 66%. You end up with a race that Trump still wins, you know, something like 51% to 47%. And obviously these things, so, you know, it's a four-point gap and things aren't static and you don't know who exactly is going to show up. But I don't know. I mean, if the, if the play is for delegates, um, why not try and actually win a state? Well, look, I, I think... Uh, one thing that we should consider is that this primary now down to two people, which uh, we haven't seen this early in a long time, also has some unusual dynamics because Trump is going to be 78 years old in June. And even though he doesn't present in any way like Joe Biden physically uh, and doesn't have the same age issues politically that Biden has, he's going to be 78 years old. And he also has um, a bunch of court cases and indictments hanging over him. Now, politically, these have all been good for him. But I, I see a scenario, and I see a scenario in part based on reporting Michael Warren and I did in New Hampshire together in a story we published early um, Wednesday morning uh, for the dispatch, that Haley may view this as an opportunity to accumulate a significant amount of delegates, some significant amount, not enough to win, particularly if she runs out of money right after Super Tuesday, uh, but that by 
accumulating these delegates, should anything unusual happen to Donald Trump that we would never be talking about? We didn't. We we never have conversations about, gee, what could happen between January and June? We don't have those conversations because they've never been worth having. But because they're actually worth having and considering, she accumulates a lot of delegates. And on the off chance that something does happen, she would roll into a convention fight or debate with the only other candidate with claim to the nomination because of delegates and longevity in the race for the nomination. And given that the money is still flowing in, given that it's early, and given that there is some market for her in the Republican Party, not a majority, but some plurality, um, why does she have to get out? And she just may simply, I, I think sometimes we forget there's a human element to this because of you know what we do for a living. But she's like, why do I have to just stop? Like, why? And we know all the reasons why she's supposed to. But what what Mike and I gathered in talking to people around her was, yeah, we just don't have to. And we have different motivations than people think we do. Uh, even if, you know, maybe later we'd have then different motivations again. And so we're just going to fight this out and see what happens. Jonah, final word to you on Nikki Haley. So, uh, just so listeners understand what Sarah's referring to is David froze up for us a few times, but this software records locally. So yeah. you'll hear many of the yeah. pearls of wisdom that we will only get afterwards. Summing up on Nikki Haley, I, I I think we haven't really talked about the the real significance of 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 Nikki Haley in this, which is not about her personally, but about the fact that the single most important litmus test in the GOP now isn't any policy issue, isn't any um, moral issue, isn't any foreign policy thing. It's purely whether or not you are all in on Trump as a infallible leader of the Republican Party. That is the central issue now. And if you criticize him, if you disagree with him, if you don't believe that the election was stolen, if you say he's lying, if any of those things, that is the definition of rhino now. It used to be when we were growing up that rhino meant that you were like Arlen Specter, that you were squishy on abortion or you were squishy on, you know, tax cuts or any of that kind of stuff. And now it simply means squishy on Donald Trump. And that is no way to build, as Steve was alluding to earlier, a winning coalition. It is the politics of subtraction all over the place. And I think, you know, we didn't really do any postmortem on, on Ron DeSantis or anything, but like this is, this is the, the, why a lot of these campaigns, I think, imploded. Look, Donald Trump might have won no matter what, um, probably would have won no matter what, but the idea you had a bunch of candidates who thought you could compromise on adulation of Donald Trump, which pissed off a bunch of people in the party who don't want that compromise and um, and did nothing to win over the people who are all in on Donald Trump. That's the schism. And it made the people who have other priorities than sniffing Donald Trump's throne um, look weak and and. Um, vacillating. It, it's one of the things that undid Ron DeSantis. And, um, and it's 
I think it all but guarantees that if it is a truly a two-person race, Joe Biden wins. If it's not a two-person race, which I don't think it will be, there's a very good shot that Donald Trump can win. In 2020, 2% of the vote went for third-party candidates. There's no way it's going to be that low. And most of those third-party candidates, I think, right now, you have to assume, come out of Joe Biden's coalition, which is much larger than Donald Trump's, but much more fragile and much more fractious. And um, and that's the lesson of this primary. And that's the that is those are the currents that Nikki Haley is trying to surf in. And I think she doesn't get the kind of credit that she deserves for being the only successful candidate to gain support throughout the primaries other than Donald Trump. Um, and everyone thinks it's an accident or that, you know, all these kinds of things. But I just I don't know what the end game is. And I fear that it's to be a a running mate, which I think would just be a bad idea all the way around. So, Jonah, I think you lay out a near perfect case for the case you're laying out in terms of. Great. All right. Next topic. But I, I do want to at least provide what I think is the alternative version that, again, I'm not convinced is more correct than yours, which yours is really just the coalition building argument, why you build coalitions in politics and why the person who doesn't build a good coalition loses. But the alternative is, yep, but Donald Trump's not trying to build a coalition. And so you keep saying he's not doing a good job building a coalition. Duh, because that's not what he's trying to do. And when you're not trying to build a coalition and instead you say, here's where I'm headed, come with me or stay home, but we're not changing to your path and we're not compromising and we're not meeting you halfway, we're not meeting you, you know, 5% of the way, not even 2% of the way. For some people, that will actually be in and of itself meaningful. And so they'll respect you more because you're not willing to compromise to get their vote versus the guy who's building a coalition is willing to meet everyone halfway. Sometimes he's willing to meet them 95% of the way. And Donald Trump's like, I won't even meet you 5%. And so that's the anti-coalition building argument that, yeah. So when, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, we don't want you, you're dead to us. The the coalition side would be like, okay, you just lost those people. But the non-coalition argument is, no, no, that's actually how you're going to get those people because they'll realize that, you know, like a, you know, used car salesman or something like you're not here to make a deal with them. They can get on board or they cannot. And again, Jonah, I think you're probably right that there's a reason that coalitions have worked forever and that this experiment will turn out to be a failure as it has been. As I pointed out, he lost the popular vote in 2016. The midterms, both of them uh, didn't go well. 2020, he lost. But I just wanted to provide that alternative. Yeah, no, that. I, I, and I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I totally agree with you, I, I, except I think and I don't think you were doing this, but people could make the assumption that you were ascribing strategic sophistication to the things Marjorie Taylor Greene says, <laughs> um, which no one should ever do. I mean, other than a <laughs> land war in Southeast Asia or getting into a contest to the death with a Sicilian, that's like the third greatest blunder. But no, um, but it comes intuitively. Right. So like and again, maybe I'm just right. I'm I'm having some um, toddler problems over here right if if you give a mouse so a country. cookie yeah <laughs> if you give a mouse a cookie he wants a glass of milk right you know that's biden's whole problem in some ways but it's also how he's going to build a coalition it's why you're calling it a larger coalition but a more fragile one and donald trump's like i will not give that mouse an effing cookie no matter what and some mice are going to be like well 
okay, I respect that. By the way, Sarah, to your point, I, I interviewed Donald Trump in, in the Oval in, in 2019. And I was asking him about his reelection and, you know, was he concerned about, I didn't use these terms, but it was kind of like, don't you need a bigger coalition? Don't you need more people? And <laughs> what he told uh, me was that his base is bigger than we think, uh, bigger than I think. And you could tell that he was very keyed in toward believing that the way he wins is a base-oriented strategy. I think the problem for him um, and people that support him comes if they care about policy outcomes, because as we saw, his greatest, his best policy achievements, his most significant ones in, in his term were... Um, all based on it, all through executive action. And so none of the immigration changes he made, none of the foreign policy changes he made were legislated, were treaties, were things that couldn't easily be undone on day one by Joe Biden. And that's the point, by the way, Haley's been making this point, but it's a point to be made nonetheless, that when you do win with a big enough coalition, as long as you have the stones to go forward with legislation, you can actually fix things and change things in a permanent way that are really hard to undo. And so many Americans are upset because Congress isn't solving problems, because the government isn't solving problems. And part of that is because a president comes in and solves a problem for a day and a half, and then his his successor just undoes it. And so problems haven't been solved and people remain frustrated. And, and, and it's a, a vicious cycle. And so Coalition politics is actually a way to fix this big problem we have that has that's fueled all this populism. But, you know, very few people seem to want to do it. I think, Sarah, if to, to your point, I mean, there's real historical evidence here, right? I mean, if you look at the aftermath of the 2012 presidential election, the one of the sort of big takeaways was that Republicans were shooting themselves in the foot by being too tough on on border issues. And you had Sean Hannity famously say in the days after that election that he was going to be for amnesty. You had to be for amnesty. We have to win Hispanic votes or, or the party's going to collapse. You had virtually every Republican consultant making and, and pollster making some version of the demography as destiny case, right? Like you have to do these things. You have to make these policy choices to win over this growing Hispanic population of the parties done. And Donald Trump, of course, comes in, does exactly the opposite, is more confrontational on the issues where he's supposed to be compromising. And as I said, the, the share of Hispanics for Republican voters has increased. Now, I don't think Donald Trump, to Jonah's point, I mean, this wasn't a strategic choice. Like, I don't think Donald Trump sat down and said, I am going to make the following policy arguments on the border so that I can increase this, the, the, the share of Hispanic voters that Republicans have. I think he did the sort of, to hell with it, I'm going to say what I believe. Um, and, you know, in, in his case, to the extent that there was strategic thinking involved, I think it probably was, to David's point, I can grow the base. I can go, grow the the sort of Republican base here. And whatever his thinking going into it, we can see what's happened. So I think your point is a good one. I think the real qu question is, at, at what point does that end? Like it, it is, I think people found Donald Trump refreshing because he's not doing this kind of coalition building. He's not doing this kind of strategic thinking. I mean, you know, there, there's a, uh, there was news that, that's broken since we've been on 
this podcast recording um, that the Biden administration is offering a temporary pause of uh, liquid natural gas um, facility approvals. And immediately, I think anybody who, who hears this news is following these things closely says, ah, this is Biden pandering to young voters concerned about climate change uh, because he's losing young voters who are concerned about Gaza. And I expect that one of the things we're going to see from Joe Biden over the next 10 months is just a series of this kind of aggressive pandering to the young voters who are skeptical of Joe Biden because he's uh, because they don't agree with him on on Gaza and Israel. So I think I mean, if I think we're likely to see massive giveaways on student loan issues, like anything that you could do to appeal to people. No, 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 more. Like, I think way more. Anything that he can do to, to appeal to young people he, he thinks he's losing, who they think are key to this coalition, he'll do. So Biden, and frankly, most of the rest of the, the political world, practices this co coalition politics in this kind of naked, open and aggressive way that I think a lot of people strike a lot of voters as gross. And Trump doesn't do that. And I do think that was one of his appeals was sort of the ah, to hell with it. I'm going to do what I think anyway. And that does. I think people do come around to that. Now, I, I don't think that's going to work this time because he's driven so many people out of that broader coalition. But yes, yeah, so I, I, I agree with all that. And I, I agree that that's part of the appeal of Donald Trump. Um, the only time I ever got a note from him thanking me for a column was when I pointed out that he didn't sound like a focus grouped guy. And it was so funny because he was like, I had also said in this column that that uh, the New York Post had always been his pool of narcissists that he'd like to see his reflection in. And um, he circles the next paragraph talking about how he doesn't sound like he's poll tested and cuts it out of the New York Post and sends it to me and says, way to go, Jonah, or something like that. Um, uh, so he hears what he wants to hear, in, in particularly in the New York Post. Anyway, be that as it may. I think the the the, the, the distinction here is it's kind of like this is like the difference between minor leagues and major leagues or some other kind of, uh, the, you know, this be bold and great forces will come to your aid. Don't bend, don't compromise thing appeals to a huge, huge chunk of the GOP electorate, right? That is his superpower. He's always had vastly more power to destroy Republicans than Democrats. He's always had vastly more power to, um, make it a Trump party, but not a majority party, right? Because in the in the sphere and the microcosm of GOP politics, he's the 800 pound gorilla. But then he thinks in the bigger pond, you know, it uh, sorry, that's a really mixed metaphor. But he thinks in the major leagues or whatever, that it is a that he has the same power. And it turns out that in in national presidential electorate politics, the things that make him so powerful in the GOP make him weaker in the national electorate. It's again, he's the salesman who thinks, yeah, I lose money on every sale, but I'll make it up in volume. He turns off more voters in a national electorate than he attracts. He attracts all sorts of people in the base, all sorts of people in the Republican Party, all sorts of people. He exploits the vestigial loyalty of party people in the Republican Party who are like, well, I'll have no tribe. I'll be homeless. I'll have to, I'll have to subscribe to the dispatch if, um, uh, if I get kicked out of the Republican Party. Um, and so they 
cave and they they sign up and they get on board the Trump train. That can work inside the coalitions of the GOP. I just don't think it works at scale with a national electorate in a two-person race. But with if RFK is running, depending on who else is running, um, I could very easily see Biden losing to Trump because Trump's coalition is smaller, but it's harder. It's more insoluble. Um, and uh, and so going into a electorate, going into an election where you only need 44% of the electorate, he wins. And that's the situation. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week that was entitled From Never Trump to Encore. And, you know, subhead, in 2019, I wanted him impeached. Now I've become convinced that Biden is worse. And Jonah, a little bit, and Steve, I guess, to, to this overall point, you know, Steve, I, your argument is that sort of like, come with me is going to work well on the front end, but it wears over time and you just start losing people. But again, there's this reverse argument that actually sometimes it takes a while for your toddler to start kicking the floor and that eventually the, they give up and they do whatever you say. And um, this op-ed, I'll be honest, was not the most persuasive thing in the world by any means, but someone's telling you what they're going to do. And they're saying, I was a never Trumper who's now voting for Trump. And it's not the only person who I know of like that. I know other people who did not vote for Trump in 16 or 20 who are going to vote for him in 2024. And I have to wonder, you know, they will try to tell you the reasons. And, you know, Joe Biden's worse. The people he's hired are catastrophic for the economy, all those things. But at the end, I do wonder whether some of it is they have come around to realize like, nope, he's not meeting you halfway. He's not compromising with you. And I've seen a little of this play out at the Supreme Court as well. You have the chief justice, for instance, who has long said his priority is to build the largest coalition possible for any given case at the court. And that's at least reportedly how you get the Obamacare case where he switches his vote comes out on the other side to uphold the constitutionality of Obamacare as a tax. Um, when he was the swing justice, right, he had uh, back in the day voted to uphold an abortion restriction in Texas. That same restriction comes up in Louisiana when he's now the swing justice. He votes to strike down the abortion restriction. And it's this idea that if everyone knows that you're out coalition building, they can hold a gun to your head. Right. Because you're willing to do something to get their vote, their 
you know, buy-in of some kind. And then you've got the Thomas Gorsuch Alito folks out there that are like, nope, there's nothing you can do to us. We're not interested. We'll go this alone if we need to. And so they're not held hostage, so to speak. And so to watch this play out in a few different institutions is becoming pretty fascinating to me and something that maybe we can revisit down the road. Well, I I, I think yeah, that's, I, I mean, look, I mean, I, I think there's something to that. I just, I guess I see a limit to it. Like, I don't, I'm, I will be shocked if, if the day after the election, the night of the election, the week after the election, we're looking back at exit polls and we see any real sizable group of Clinton, Biden, Trump voters. So Clinton in 16, Biden in 20, Trump in 24. I will just be shocked if that's the case. And I say this to somebody who thinks Joe Biden's been an awful president. I think he's been a very, very bad president. But but to jump in on on Trump at this point, I mean, I think you you have to be, you have to believe that you have to sort of accepted that we are in our post-liberal, almost post-constitutional world, and that this is now nothing but power politics, and you're going to pick, quote unquote, your side. And Trump is going to pound heads more than anybody else on, on your side. I talked to one of these voters on exactly that question, Steve. And again, sort of broadly summarizing, what I think this person would say is, no, the Trump presidency the possibilities of a Trump presidency are on a pretty big spectrum, maybe a larger spectrum than what we've ever seen from a potential president. Biden's is a pretty narrow spectrum. You know what Biden's going to do. You know what a second Biden term will look like by and large. Trump, look, there's the, the, the better end of the spectrum where it looks a lot like Trump won. And, um, you know, there's good people in a bunch of these agencies and administration positions. And uh, yeah, maybe Congress doesn't get a lot done, but you get the executive acts that at least move the ball forward on some stuff, some good regulations, maybe. And yes, on the other end of the spectrum is the really bad stuff, the like really, really dark stuff. And so I'm making a gamble between the sure thing that Biden is bad or the upside of Trump, which is better than the sure thing of Biden. And I'm betting that the downside version of Trump is just far less likely. And if you wanted to make them all equal, you've got the, you know, one third Trump is better, one third Biden bad, one third Trump bad, and then you pick Trump. Now, I think they would say that they think the likelihood of the Trump bad part of the spectrum, like the really bad part, is very low, like 5%. And so again, they're just thinking of this like a Vegas bet. So do you, I mean, there's a sincere question. I'm not trying to be snarky. Do you think they're really thinking of this? I mean, do you actually think that this is a reasoning process that they're like got a piece of paper and a two by two box and they're figuring all this (laughs) stuff? Or is it that this is something that we've seen quite a bit of in the last nine years of people? I am now in the Sarah Isger patented lizard brain explains all things. Yeah. I was going right? to say, you feel like you're making my argument here. Yeah. So like, <laughs> well, because like it just this whole argument that you're presenting here feels like a retroactive yeah. uh, rationalization for a gut desire um, and not like you know, these people are Vulcans who have just done all the cost benefit analysis and come out with this, this sort of decision. But I think that's totally fair. And look, I think, look, I've talked to voters in the past couple of weeks, Trump supporters, and they just look at it as, in a sense, cold, hard policy. 
on right like they just on the issues that matter to them um i was speaking to people that are in the in the energy sector and from a regulatory standpoint biden has been very bad for them therefore their pocketbooks and trump will be the exact opposite i've spoken to voters who like his policies and when i say what about the things that people worry about with him such as you know the the dictator stuff and all of that and they just like it's not true He's going to serve his term and he'll be termed out and he'll go away and he's not going to destroy. The... And these are these are voters that have been lifelong Republicans, not necessarily just, you know, attracted to the coalition under Trump. And so there is a different view on Trump from many of his supporters, from people not deeply enmeshed in politics and government um, and all of the things that we talk about. And and, and it makes you know, from from the set, from that point of view, if you put them yourself in their position, they're making a rational decision um, about who they think would be the better president. Man, we've stayed way too long on this, but I do want to touch on one other thing that Jonah talked about was that uh, you know Jonah's prediction if it were Trump versus Biden, but that it's not gonna be. I think the conventional wisdom right now is that any third party bid would take more from Biden's coalition because it's more fragile, because it's larger, for all the reasons that you've all said so far. And so any um, third-party attempt that actually has wind in its sails will hurt Biden and help Trump. Is there any argument on the other side? Is there anything you all see where a third-party bid hurts Trump, John? I could try to argue that it will be easier for Biden to message to bring back the Kennedy defections back into the fold by po pointing to his kookiness and his craziness. And that basically you could end up in a situation where the Kennedy voters are just this sort of, you know, uh, conspiracy theorist type uh, voter who actually are taking from from Trump. Now, that's not what we're seeing right now, but I could I could see that happening in the long run. I mean, I think the best. No, I, I mean, I think in the spirit of of sort of our approach to the 2024 election from the beginning, anything can happen. So we should be open to any possibilities and we should be reluctant to draw straight line projections on almost anything, which is why even as we talk about Nikki Haley in South Carolina, I think you have to say, well, boy, the polling is really bad for her. The race is really tough. This seems like an impossible hill to climb. And yet we're not going to close off any any um, any possible outcomes on this. I mean, I think that the, the very simple case that there is a coalition of non-Trump or anti-Trump voters that is higher than 50% plus one. And the more candidates you have, the more options these non-Trump voters have, the less likely uh, it is that Joe Biden prevails. Uh, having said that, yeah, is there, is there a way that you can imagine somebody making some of the kinds of populist arguments or critiques of Biden that Trump is making and eating into to some of his support. I, I don't think they're going to peel off the sort of diehard MAGA folks, but peeling off some of his support. Sure. I think, I think that's possible. I think the better case for um, being enthusiastic about a no labels style candidate is these, these candidates are both awful. This is an election that's unworthy of the American people. And as long as there's going to be chaos in the following 10 months and probably the next four years, there, we might as well have some good chaos. And good chaos would be a bigger debate, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, the kinds of election that would involve 
other discussions of other uh, other issues than these two guys settle on. If it were a you know center right challenge uh, on the no labels ticket, and we know that no labels has said they prefer to have a Republican up top their ticket, you know, would that person help um, shape the debate for what would be a post Trump Republican Party or a post Trump center right in the country? Um, I think those are the reasons to potentially be enthusiastic about about that kind of a challenge, much less than that it's likely to succeed on its own terms. Two last quick points. One is, you know, if you believe, as I do, that the better prism for thinking about Trump and Trumpism is psychological rather than political or ideological, part of the strategy could be simply that Nikki staying in forces errors out of Trump, that he has... Uh, gets so enraged, he says things about her as a woman that turn off even more voters, that make him look desperate, that make him look unhinged, and that then has its own knock-on sort of catalytic effects and 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 drives him to have the equivalent of an open mic moment um, that people have been talking about and prophesying for all these years. Which is exactly what the Nikki team, by the way, will tell you. Yes, and that is their plan. And by the way, as as we've been recording, uh, she went out and tweeted going after him on on his mental fitness without using those terms saying, did, did Trump just say the person suing him is, quote, running for office? Is he confused again? And then she goes on to just goad him and bait him. Nice. OK. And then the second quick point, and I just uh, I defer to you guys because, you know, the granularity stuff better than I do. Um, but because I, I disagree with Steve in a certain sense about the idea that a third party candidate running on the center right could hurt Biden. Um, I mean, it could hurt Trump more or something simply because Biden may need those center right votes to make up for the crazy left wing votes that he loses over, say, Israel and or just or to RFK in a four way race or whatever. Um, but so the only strategy I can see where a third way candidate, a third party candidate actually delivers the election to Biden is as a favorite son thing where someone runs just to deny a specific state that Trump needs to get to 270 in the Electoral College. I don't know what state that is. I don't know if that state exists. I don't know if it, there's a candidate that could do that. But like if I, I think it's obvious at this point that Trump is planning another Electoral College strategy more than a popular vote strategy and um, or at least the smart people around him are. And so that's the only where place I can see where if there was some candidate who would take Michigan, take Minnesota, take, you know, one of these states that he's counting on to get to 270 off the map for him. Uh, other than that, I just don't see how a third party candidate helps uh, Biden more than Trump. You know, uh, there is one version where I think it could happen. So first of all, there's the like RFK. I don't think RFK is going to get a huge percentage, but there's a real argument that RFK is such a jump ball <laughs> in terms of where he falls on the uh, ideological spectrum that you don't really know where he's going to take votes from. And maybe it'll only be two or three percent, but that two or three percent could come from anywhere. Uh, the no labeled argument that we're going to do like Larry Hogan at the top of the ticket or something. Yeah, I think quite clearly that would hurt Biden more than it would hurt Trump. But let me give you a di totally different scenario or example, which is there were a lot of those Bernie Sanders Trump voters, i.e. if you get someone who's uh, anti-establishment and outside the system enough, 
that could actually draw more from Trump because the establishmenty people who are more comfortable with someone who's a politician, frankly, will stick with Biden. So again, and it maybe even feeds into your favorite son thing, Jonah, which normally I would say is just dead because we've nationalized politics so much. There really isn't a whole lot of state pride except for one state. Do you know what state has more state pride than anyone else? Oh, for God's Matthew sakes. McConaughey for president. <laughs> Favorite son. I really think it would be very interesting to see where he would draw votes from. I think it would be hard to know because it would be all over the place. I don't know. I'm really high on the Matthew McConaughey for president, and I mean super high on it. Uh, with that, you know, my not worth my time question this week I just don't know that we have enough time to really dive into it, but I want to give you, we may just have to do this over two weeks. So here's the question. David French and I were positing this idea that lots of people online, in conversations, will act like they know a whole lot about politics and football. And David's point was, They'll act like they have the same amount of knowledge about both. It turns out they actually do have more knowledge about football. They watch a lot of football. They know the rules, et cetera. But they know so much less about politics. So the gap is bigger in politics. Well, not surprisingly, from the flagship podcast, a listener who has played for Oklahoma, Utah State, and Michigan State said that was total bullshit. That in fact, people know nothing about football who are talking about it. And this was actually David showing his Dunning-Kruger effect, where just because he thinks he knows a little about football, he's overestimating his knowledge of football the same way that a lot of people overestimate their knowledge of politics. So I was just curious what you guys think. Do people, do people who think they know a lot about politics and football actually know more about politics or more about football? John, I'm coming to you. Uh I would say way more about politics. I mean, uh, I was a, I was a, a mediocre high school football player, and um, I just watch the Packers every week. I watch one game. I'm happy when my team loses. I'm sad. I'm sorry. I'm happy when my team wins. I'm sad when they lose. It, it goes on for 24 hours. But like I, when I'm watching the game, I'm not like, oh, they're in a cover two. They're in zone. They're in man. I'm like, I, I'm not like watching on that high of a level. I mean, sometimes I get angry about you know they're doing a stupid thing. But I think most people, yeah, most people are not watching football. You're not watching a football game as like a coach or a real expert would. You're not doing the Tony Romo um, analysis of like how they're lining up and what's going to happen for each play. You know, I think most people, yeah, don't don't know a lot about football, which is which is which is very complex. It's like you know, chess, chess, um, with, with chess meets wrestling. You know, Trucker. Well, I, I'm going to answer this way. I think it's easier to fake it about football than it is about politics. Ooh, interesting. Um, you know, it's um, and and. Related fun fact, when I'm talking to voters, what I like to tell them to sort of put them at ease is, hey, listen, I'm just a color commentator, really. I sit up in the cheap seats and, I, you know, I can tell you if a quarterback's footwork is good, but I, I've never actually done it. And that seems to get them uh, going. But it, I do believe that it's hard to know the, the answer to your question for sure, but I think it's a lot easier to sound intelligent about sports, including football, than it is about politics, at least when you're with people that actually know something about politics. All right, Jonah, which one's the bigger Dunning-Kruger effect, politics or football? Well, so I'm, I'm, I was the wrong person to go last on this because I am fully like 
and transparently, obviously have to say, I know very little about football compared to even people who are faking how much they know about football. Right. I mean, like I haven't followed football closely since, you know, high school, college kind of thing. And so I know how the game is played. I one of the most difficult things I ever had to do was teach a room of chemical factory managers in Bohemia (laughs) the rules to American football. Uh, and, uh, I'm still scarred from the experience. Um, but, um, I think because I'm an inveterate eavesdropper on people's conversations, I think the it's not so much whether they think they know more about one or the other. It's that the level of confidence that football lends itself to over politics is really, really remarkable. And maybe it's because I know, look, I know less about politics than, than a lot of people. A lot of people we know, right? Um, maybe a lot of people on this podcast, but I have a pretty good sense of being able to tell who actually knows a lot about politics versus who's faking it. Like you can just pick up on things, you know, when they, there's so many tells when people opine about politics that for people like us who've spent our lifetimes in it, all you need is one or two little slips from them and they're like, oh, so you don't actually know what you're talking about, right? And in football, that's harder for me to pick up. But I also think football lends itself less to that because most of the other people listening are equally ignorant. Most people who are talking about in, in real life who are talking about football are talking about football with other people who've never really played the game, certainly never coached, never been on the field, certainly in the NFL or any of that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, the people that we talk to about politics, we talk to a lot of people who have done the equivalent of those things, and we know how to tell who's full of it and who's not. So that would be sort of my incredibly lame uh, escape uh, routine from this question. I love this because I think the answer is probably something like identical. And because look at how our culture is built around it, right? We have cable news networks dedicated to both the sports of politics and the sports of football, frankly. In both, you need to know quite a bit of history to sound fluent in either one. Um, And so you can know right away if someone, you know, isn't citing something from 20 years ago that's relevant to the conversation, because in some ways, because the football season has so few games in it and because the political season, you know, is every two years, really. Like you need that historical arc to actually come up with good examples for a lot of things. (laughs) But if I have to pick one, I'm going to argue that it's the football people who know less than they think they do. And this this email from a listener just convinced me. So I'm going to read you this paragraph to give an example. On any given play, does any armchair QB, you know, notice the safety rotation combined with press coverage to see a likely boundary corner blitz coming, which really means you're likely getting a cover one shell, depending on a wealth of variables, but this is just a hypo. And the play side receiver is now hot and he and the QB must both notice and signal one another. And the O-line should likely check to a slide pro knowing they're going to have to leave one unblocked in the R B has to abandon his original assignment because he's got to chop the backside DE if the line is sliding the protection. And now I know what people think when I talk to them about what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard. I've been watching football for for 30 years. I've never heard anyone. My dad played college football. I've never heard anyone talk like that. You know, (laughs) 
It's like pick up the blitz. You know, that's kind of that's the kind of like that's right. high level. Like, and actually, I will say one thing: if you want to watch football from a high level, it really helps to see the whole field if you're high up in the stands. The way that we watch football games on TV now, they cut to all these different camera camera angles, so you can't see that's the right. whole field. You don't see before the play how it's lining up. And I actually recently watched a game uh, where like ESPN three or something, watching some college football streaming, and all it had one camera, and it's like watching. You remember like te- do you guys ever play video games, Tecmo football? You know, it's like you can actually see the whole play unfolding i mean i watched it i watched the michigan alabama game and i knew exactly how it was going to fail i knew he was going to go up the middle anyway you can that's how tony Romo does it. he sees the whole field. <laughs> this is that we're all we're all a disadvantage watching it from all these cut angles uh, this is how i ended up asking my husband the other day i was like i'm just really curious when you watch football are you watching it totally differently than me because i watch the ball it seems very possible that a whole bunch of people watching football who actually know what they're doing don't watch the ball they're watching the offensive line to see who the first read is and the third read and everything else. And my husband was like, yes, yeah, Sarah, you don't always watch the ball. And I was like, huh, interesting, <laughs> interesting. He's right, by the way. Yeah, I really feel like I... But why I, do we have that expression, keep your eye on the ball? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many equivalents in politics. Um, so yeah, I think, though, that because... I don't know, maybe it's just because people vote or maybe the Dunning-Kruger effect when you're on the other side of it, like when you actually are an expert, you have more grace for the people who are a little bit behind you. You think they're closer to you than they actually are. But I think that the people talking about politics, by and large, know more about politics than the people talking about football. That's where I've come down. I I got a very social science-y point to make about that really quickly. Uh, the stigma on talking about politics versus talking about sports is completely different. No one ever says, you know, at the dinner table, there's no talk of football. <laughs> um, and uh, and so it is much more inviting to have opinions and it's much a much mm. lower risk premium mm. on having wrong opinions than there is in politics. And, and so actually sports rivalries between friends can be very enriching to the friendship. And whereas we have true. seen lately uh, political <laughs> rivalry rivalries between friends and family are uh, debilitating. Although I do have this amazing story where a um, I want to anonymize this as best as possible. A friend brings her boyfriend to my house to stay for a few days. And uh, we all go to the Washington Monument when it reopened, where you could go to the then the top of the Washington Monument. It had been closed for a long, long time. So to the point, I'd never been to the top of the Washington Monument. We do that and we get to the top and the elevator doors open. And of course, there's this like thing that's like about George Washington and whatever. And the boyfriend turns to me and sort of as an aside, it wasn't really to anyone or for any purpose said, huh, so they're listing George Washington as the first president. And I have so many questions. <laughs> so many. Oh my. And I, I was frozen in that moment because I didn't want to be the Dunning-Kruger asshole. So instead, I just had to, I had to let it go. Mm-hmm. Because the, what question can you ask at that point that doesn't make you the jerk? <laughs> yeah. But I now I live with this so many years later, wondering, was it a conspiracy theory? Was it did he not? Like, did he think someone else was? I don't know. And now I'll that know. boyfriend is a federal judge. <laughs> 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 All right. Thank you, listeners. We'll check you next week.
That was a weird podcast. It's <laughs> very strange. The whole thing. Start to finish. Strange. Oh, boy. I thought it was fun. You didn't like it. Oh, I think people will like it. You think, think other that's... people will like it. You didn't like it, but other people will. I liked how it was Jonah Goldberg. Take three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.